0: Who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text just news to 989898 98 98 right now. Hello, America, and happy Tuesday. Yes, it's a different America today. There's no doubt when you woke up this morning, America's not the same that it was when it got to work yesterday morning. Why? Because for the first time in our history, the FBI, judge's permission, Justice Department's backing, obtained a warrant and raided the home and office at Mar-a-Lago for former President Donald Trump. It's a threshold that's never been crossed before in American history. A lot of facts are not in evidence yet. We don't know the exact reasons for the motivation, the urgency, the need for a raid versus uh, dropping a grand jury subpoena. We've talked to all the illegal experts today. We, we get great insights from people like Alan Dershowitz and Jonathan Turley, who are raising grave questions about the FBI's conduct here. But we do know this. We do know that what the FBI agents were looking for were documents, possibly classified documents that the National Archives believe belong in their collections, presidential records collections. We do know that the way the FBI handled this instance with Donald Trump is a vast departure from the way they handled a similar circumstance With Hillary Clinton seven years ago this summer. It was in the summer of 2015 when I broke the story at the Washington Times that the FBI, in concert with the State Department Inspector General and the Intelligence Committee Inspector General, was investigating Hillary Clinton for having classified emails on her private email server at her home in Chappaqua, New York. Now, let's go back to my reporting back then. What did we know? The FBI didn't raid Hillary Clinton's home. They didn't even demand the documents back. You know what they did? They allowed her lawyer, David Kendall, to put them on a thumb drive and keep them for a very long period of time in a safe in his office. What a difference. No matter what else comes this, no matter what the reasons are, what the dynamics are, there is a disparate treatment that is going to be readily apparent to the American public on how Hillary Clinton got treated versus how Donald Trump got treated. And that is a disparate treatment that has played out over the last six years through all the different things, the FBI lied to the FISA court. The FBI manufactured or altered documents to deceive the FISA court. The FBI took evidence from Democrats, tried to pretend it wasn't from Democrats, tried to pretend it was credible when their own intelligence analysts said it wasn't credible. It was garbage. And they sustained an investigation, not for one month, two months, three months, but for nearly three years, dirtying up President Trump's first two years in office and the end of his campaign. These disparate treatments are going to be irrefutable, no matter what the final facts are. Now, a lot of new information is going to come to pass. We're going to learn a lot more over the next two weeks. There'll be search warrant returns released by the judge, most likely. I'm sure we'll hear something from the Justice Department. There'll be some claims and some counterclaims. The president may go in and take legal action in the courts. But one thing will remain true even after we get all the facts. There was a difference in the way Donald Trump was treated in this claim, the way Mrs. Clinton was treated in her same circumstance, questions about classified government documents. That is a theme, a record of governance that we now have a long body to judge from. And it's going to be why millions of Americans continue to distrust the FBI. There are a lot of good people in the FBI. The FBI does a lot of good work. It's Washington-based investigations, however, Have caused this upset stomach in many Americans. They just see a partisanship, a political nature to these investigations that troubles folks. And I think at the end of the day, the record will speak for itself. We will get the facts, like we got the facts of Russia collusion in Ukraine and Lafayette Square and Russian bounties and all the other claims. We will get to the bottom of it. Now, When you ask yourself, what's motivating this, at least the people who have in the past gone to the FBI to sick the FBI on President Trump, people like Hillary Clinton, her lawyers, people like Perkins Coie or the former Perkins Coie lawyer, Mark Elias. Mark Elias said last night, he thinks this is the episode that will nullify the president from being eligible to run again in 2024. The Democrats' motives are out in open nullification of Donald Trump's future candidacy, disqualifying him from running. That's not my word. Those are the words they are using. Eric Holder and Mark Elias and all the people who've been around the constant effort to attack Donald Trump. So we know what a motive is by the people around them. We know in some instances those Democrats have been the source of information that got fed to the FBI that drove FBI decisions. We don't know yet here what's driving this decision But we at least know the motive of some people on this stage, and it should trouble us all. And the question now is, did the FBI act appropriately or did they act excessively? Early legal analysts like Alan Dershowitz, who I talked to just a little bit ago, Jonathan Turley, raising serious concerns up and down the Congress, Republicans and all bodies of the Congress seriously concerned about this. We're going to get you the facts so you can make up your own mind We will get those facts. It may take a few days. It'll be frustrating, but we will get those facts, and we will be able to make a better judgment about whether what the FBI did was wrong, whether it was right, whether President Trump has culpability or not, whether the parallels with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are now similar or different. We'll get all those things, but one thing is certain, no matter what you take from this conversation, America on this Tuesday, August 9th, is different than the America That we woke up to yesterday because of this raid. Seeing the current president's administration unleash the power of the FBI on his potentially future opponent in the 2024 election hasn't been seen before in the history of this country. And I think that is something that we'll all be grappling with for the next several days and weeks, if not months. It may be something that only an election can solve at the end of the day. All right, we've got a great show for you today. We're going to bounce around the globe. We're going to start in Israel. With our good friend, Ambassador Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. We're going to talk about Israeli reaction or worldwide reaction to what happened at President Trump's compound yesterday. But we're also going to dig into what's going on on the ground in Israel. The strife between the Israelis in Gaza with the Iranian-backed Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Important moments there. The view of the United States on the global stage. Will B.B. Netanyahu make a comeback? We're going to cover all that. And then I'm going to flip over to Michigan, where one of the candidates who the Republicans have the greatest hope in, former Army veteran, former combat pilot, John James is vying for the 10th congressional seat in Michigan, a newly drawn district that includes a very influential Macomb County in Michigan. Republicans are very excited and bullish about John James. We're going to talk to him about how did he win his primary, What are the issues that real voters in Michigan care about? We'll ask him about the raid. We'll ask him about the failed withdrawal of Afghanistan a year ago. What are the pocketbook issues affecting everybody? John James, someone who almost knocked off Senator Gary Peters in an unexpectedly strong showing two years ago, back on the ballot in the fall, running for the new House 10 district in Michigan. A lot of people think that's going to trend Republican. A lot of people excited about John James. You're going to get to meet him and hear from him firsthand on this great podcast so we'll take a quick commercial break ponder what we talked about about the raid we'll come right back first up ambassador michael Oren, followed by combat veteran john james running for the house seat in michigan two great guests back to back right after this folks if you owe back taxes fair warning you're not going to like this the irs is mailing millions of pay up letters millions i say IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit TNUSA.com slash Just News. That's TNUSA.com slash Just News. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. You've been reading Just the News. You know there's a lot of tension, a lot of history unfolding in the Middle East, Israel and Palestine, a a, a truce in the Gaza, of course, the continuation of the Abraham Accords and peace breaking out in many different ways between Arab neighbors and Israel. This next guest is really one of the most brilliant people when it comes to security, diplomacy, the Middle East. And by the way, he's one heck of a writer, too. He's been doing some amazing novel and fiction books. He is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States. Michael Oren, Mr. Ambassador, good to have you back on the show. Always great to be with you, John, and and Michael, please. Ah, absolutely. (laughs) Michael, please. I'm trained to call you Mr. Ambassador. I'll have to break that habit. (laughs) Let me start with a little bit of the news in America that probably people in Israel are talking about as well. Last night, the announcement that President Trump's home and office in Mar-a-Lago raided by the FBI in pursuit of some classified documents they believe might still be in his possession. Your thoughts, and how, how is Israel, how does someone on the outside looking in view this moment in American history?
1: The Israelis have been fascinated by this. I was on the Israeli news about three, four times today, television and radio, uh, following this story. Um, and I think Israelis are interested in it because we're experiencing some of the same problems here. Um, the, the, the trials of, uh, of uh, former Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu with a, good, with a large segment of the Israeli population, not the majority, but a significant segment of the population, feeling that he's being targeted by a corrupt legal system um, and, and unjustly um, um, pursued and, 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 and oppressed by this system. And so this has a certain resonance for Israelis who feel that you know, the good people in America may feel that Donald Trump is being uh, targeted uh, by the legal system. Uh, the question whether Donald Trump will be able to run again as president, there's big questions about whether Benjamin Netanyahu will be able to run again for prime minister. Uh, so a lot of parallels, Israelis are following it very closely. And, uh, and frankly, Donald Trump remains very popular here because of the, the great gestures that he did for the state of Israel, recognizing Jerusalem as our capital, recognizing uh, the Golan Heights Uh, as uh, part of his Israeli sovereignty, uh, being the architect of the Abraham Accords and pulling out from the disastrous Iran deal of 2018, 2015.
0: Yeah, no, there's a very special relationship between the former president and Israel. I think the affection goes both ways. It's, It's a very, very special relationship. When you look out, I mean, the last decade we've seen, obviously, as you mentioned, Prime Minister Netanyahu, we've had Two former presidents of France convicted on corruption, a South Korea president convicted of corruption, and two other of its former presidents at least imprisoned. This dynamic of current party going after one of their rivals in the former party seems to be spreading across the globe in democracies, yet democracy lives on. Is this a trend line that would give people of democratic support and liberty concern, or is it just a sign of the times that we live in?
1: Nothing deep concern. I think, deep concern. I think uh, democracy as an idea is being challenged. You know, back in 1989, when Francis Fukuyama wrote that book, uh, The End of History, uh, he believed that the fall of the Berlin Wall was the end of a, of, of a great contest, whether uh, con- whether communism, authoritarian government would, uh, would uh, surpass a liberal democracy as the most effective form of human governance. And it's true uh, for Francis Fukuyama, no, the, the, the battle's over. Democracy won. And here we are, you know, 30 some odd years later, seeing that democracy is being challenged uh, by other systems, not the least of which is the Chinese system. Um, and um, what we see is, the, I say, believe, is the great challenge of our day is the breakdown of public trust in institutions. Um, I just come back to the United States and I was with some, you know, some liberal uh, family members who were telling me how they've lost face in the Supreme Court because of the Roe versus Wade uh, decision. Uh, You can go to a different part of the United States and hear faith, lots of faith in the FBI and um, and in the justice system. Uh, And that's very disconcerting. Uh, And we're
0: experiencing very, very similar in the state of Israel. Yeah, it really is remarkable. Now let's dial in on what's been going on in Israel. Really fascinating moment. There was a flare up of violence, then Israel and Palestine, Palestinian Minutes made a truce over the weekend. Tell us what precipitated the violence, what was going on, and then why Hamas so quickly pulled back from the conflict.
1: Well, I think if you find a core cause of it is that the Palestinians are incapable of governing themselves. We talk, you know, many people will talk about a two-state solution without ever asking the question whether the Palestinians are actually capable of sustaining a nation state. Um, in Judea and Samaria, which is known in the world as the West Bank, you have the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is incapable of extending its sovereignty over, over the small area of the West Bank. And, and, and the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, won't stand for re-election. He's in the 17th year of a six-year term because he knows he's going to lose. So what's happened in the West Bank is that there are Palestinian cities like Jenin that uh, have, have, have basically declared independence of the Palestinian Authority, and they've come under the aegis of Palestinian terrorist groups, particularly uh, Islamic Jihad. Islamic Jihad is based in Gaza. Ostensibly, since Israel's withdrawal from Gaza in 2005, Gaza has been under the control of Hamas, an Islamic extremist organization. Uh, but even Hamas can't control the small Gaza Strip. So you have another Islamic extremist group, Islamic Jihad, which is challenging Hamas. Now, I guess it gets kind of complicated and there won't be a quiz afterwards, John, I promise. <laughs> but both Hamas <laughs> and Islamic Jihad are, contro- are controlled by Iran. That's and the key, Iran is isn't it? Fight Israel, it Iran, Iran's willing to fight Israel to the last Palestinian. So what happened was um, there were a number of terrorist attacks that came from Janine and sponsored by Islamic Jihad. 19 Israelis were killed. Uh, Israel sent its army. Uh, into Janine to fight the terrorists. Uh, It was during one of those battles that day, a Palestinian Palestinian American journalist, um, Shirin Abu Akhla, uh, a reporter for Al Jazeera television, was killed. And the world obsessed about this uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. There have been 2,700 war correspondents killed in various conflicts around the world since 1990. But only on this one could the world become obsessed, uh, including the, the Biden administration dealt with it again and again and again and many members of Congress, uh, true obsession. Um, But Islamic Jihad doesn't care a feather about Shireen Abu Atala. What he did care about was the arrest of one of its leaders in Janine. And Islamic Jihad said to Israel, threatened, if you don't release the leader, we're gonna start shooting rockets at you. Israel didn't release the leader and Islamic Jihad started sending rockets. They sent 1,200 rockets over the course of 55 hours. That's a lot of rockets. Unfortunately, we have the Iron Dome system, which proved 97% effective. Only four Israelis were uh, were wounded slightly. Um, a number of Palestinians were killed, but apparently, according to our sources, most of the Palestinians were killed by Islamic Jihad rockets that fell short and landed on Palestinian neighborhoods. Uh, of course, they're trying to blame that, for, you know, blame, blame that on us at the UN, even as we're talking here. Um, now, why did Hamas let Islamic Jihad shoot like this? Well, one reason is that, hey, you know, it really can't stop them. But secondly, um, it was happy to see Islamic the Jihad get a bloody nose. Islamic Jihad didn't mind getting bombed in Gaza as long as its prestige increased on the West Bank and particularly in Jameen. And and the Iranians, I believe, wanted to uh, up the ante in negotiations with the Europeans and the United States over the possible renewal of, renew of the possible 2015 uh, Iran nuclear deal. What are the Iranians saying, but why are the Iranians doing this, John? They're saying to the world, look, look at all the mischief we can cause just by giving a green light to our proxy terrorist group, Islamic Jihad. All right. Imagine the mischief we can cause if we get an atomic weapon. And don't you want to pay us hundreds of billions of dollars not to do that? That's basically the message that's going on here. Very, very complex. Um, in Israel itself, the current prime minister, who's an interim prime minister of the was able to say, and prove the Israeli public, look, I managed this crisis. Um, Israel actually opened up the fighting, didn't wait for um, Islamic Jihad to fire first, it was going to fire first, um, and, uh, and conducted a good operation. But the Israeli government didn't change the rules of the game. And I, I personally, as a citizen, have a little bit of a problem with that, John. I think that uh, we play by Iran's rules. Uh, Iran." gets Islamic Jihad to fire at us. We fire back at Islamic Jihad. Uh, Palestinian civilians get killed. We get blamed as war criminals. I would really like to see a situation that every rocket that comes out of the border, uh, made in Iran, from Gaza, that the Israeli response would be to blow up an oil refinery on the Persian
0: Gulf. I'd imagine the response. And let me ask you this. There seems to be a little bit of division going on. They're both sponsored by Iran in some way. But Islamic Jihad, much more aggressive. Hamas not looking for a war at this moment. Is that an interesting schism? And have we seen it before in this dynamic?
1: We see the funny all the time in Palestinian politics. It just fractures. And uh, even on the West Bank, there are you know, several dozen different groups uh, competing with each other. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, is 85 years old. He's a three-pack-a-day three, three pack guy. Uh, <laughs> he hasn't chosen a successor. And uh, when he goes, not if he goes, when he goes, it's going to be a bloodbath. And my great fear is we're going to find ourselves in the middle of it, as all these different groups begin to shoot at each other. Already beginning in Janine, they're already beginning, um, and in, in Gaza also, it, it fractures. But it's very important for us, to you go know, as 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 part of the Western civilization, not to judge these situations by Western terms. Um, I well, I was in charge of, of Gaza for the Israeli government for about a year and a half, and I, I wouldn't wish this on anybody, but I, I visited the, uh, the southern uh, command of what is our FBI, the Shabak, and they showed me a picture of a Hamas leader standing on top of a pile of rubble in Gaza after one of the wars, and he's making a peace sign. And the head of, the, uh, of our FBI asked me, what do you think? Is that a victory picture or a defeat picture? I said, it's a defeat picture. He's, sitting, he's standing on a pile of rubble. He said, no, it's a victory a victory picture because as far as he's concerned, uh the fact that he's still standing and giving the victory signs means he's won. You know, Israel, you know, only has to has to win every war, but Hamas only has to not lose every war. And to show that it's standing up and, and for us in the West, that's like a, a real switch around. Um to understand that uh, while 1,200 trucks from Israel enter the Gaza Strip every day to bring in everything food, medicine, uh, construction materials, there's no shortage of anything. Hamas present, prevents three quarters of those trucks from getting in because it wants to have Israel blamed in the world for creating a humanitarian crisis in Gaza and wants the Gazans to blame Israel for the humanitarian crisis. Unbelievable and, you know, you're, dynamic. You're, 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 you're it's a chess game every day willing to starve out its own people in order to make a political point.
0: Um, yeah, we're not used to that in the it, Western people, world. That's hard for us to comprehend some days.
1: <laughs> it's very hard. It's very hard. You have to just, basically, I, my recommendation to anybody dealing with the Palestinian situation is to just throw out every precondition you know, because this preconceived notion you know uh, about human behavior and about good governance, because it, it just doesn't hold. It doesn't hold. Um, during the COVID uh, uh, epidemic. Uh, the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, right, uh, wouldn't let Palestinians there get Israeli vaccines. They preferred to see them die of COVID.
0: America can be a great asset in these sort of moments of strife. They can also be difficult if we're murky and weak. Your assessment of the Biden administration's approach to policy in the Middle East, specifically Israel, and then, of course, these negotiations with Iran. It's odd to be negotiating with Iran and watching Iran every day act out in a very negative way. How does this get viewed in the region?
1: Well, he recently hosted uh, President Saeed here. I was part of the, the Israeli hosting uh, delegation, and i glad to see him. Uh, he had some very important messaging, particularly for his own party. I mean, he got off the plane and said, I'm a Zionist. Uh, and I'm sure there were you know, some progressives in Congress who were squirming in their seats when they heard that one. Um, and he assured us that, of continuing support, you know, bipartisan support for Israel in, in the United States. All that was very good to hear. He reaffirmed America's support for, for Israeli security. Uh, the only problem is that, on one hand, you know the administration is reassuring us of its commitment to our security. On the other hand, it's undermining our security by seeking a renewed JCPOA, uh, an Iran nuclear deal, which we regard as the greatest strategic threat facing Israel and facing the entire region, in fact. So it's giving with one hand and taking away with the other. And I think that's one of the reasons that the president received such a very cool reception in Saudi Arabia and other areas of the Gulf, because they don't want to play that game. We have many other commonalities with the United States. We share democratic values. We share history. We share a deep affinity between the people in the Gulf. You know, they don't necessarily have those. Those pillars of those defense, what they have is is security, 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 and they feel the United States is undermining their security.
0: It's a remarkable dynamic. And meanwhile, the Arab neighbors that used to be in conflict years ago with Israel just seem to be moving closer and closer together. Saudi Arabia didn't sign the Abraham Accords yet, but allowing flyovers of the kingdom by Israeli airlines that has to be a really good sign for the region. Tell us about the warming of relations.
1: Well, the, Saudi Arabia hasn't signed, but I guarantee you that the Bahrainis and the Amiratis would not have signed without getting a green light from Saudi Arabia. And there are a number of Israeli businessmen who are doing business, who are working in Saudi Arabia now, they have usually have more than one passport. Um, and, and I think that eventually Saudi Arabia, in one way or another, will join the Abraham Accords, as will other Arab countries. Um, again, we have I think, the United States to thank for this. Uh, yes, uh, President Trump and his administration who were the architects of this agreement. They, they husband this agreement through. Um, but again, it is strange where you have to thank President Obama, because uh, President Obama set out to bring Arabs and Jews closer together uh, through peace. Uh, he succeeded just not through peace. He succeeded through common opposition to his policies. Uh, Funny how policies that works Yeah. Yeah. It brought, it really, uh, thank you. Uh, brought us all together. I wish we could have done it uh, in, under different circumstances. I think that the the the, the Gulf Arabs in particular are, are fed up with the Palestinians. The Palestinians hold the world record for a people who has been offered a two-state solution and have turned it down most frequently with with by violence. This is going back to the 1930s. That's not from yesterday. And they're fed up, and they they want to move ahead. They understand that Israel is an ally, not just not an enemy, but an ally, an ally against Iran. An ally also against Sunni extremism, against the Muslim Brotherhood and those who back the Muslim Brotherhood. They're, they're really between you know, a rock and a hard place. They're facing dual enemies. We, we're, there, we're here to help defend this region. And not that. We offer modernity. We offer technology. We offer everything they want and need. And they're just not going to let the Palestinians stand in their way anymore. You know, they're happy to see if there's a, a solution for Palestinians, uh, the Palestinian situation, the conflict. They're happy to see it. But they're just not going to give the Palestinians the veto anymore. It's not going to happen.
0: Yeah, they've worn out the welcome. There's no doubt about it. I want to talk about Benjamin Netanyahu. It certainly looks like the climate is conducive for a political comeback, which would be pretty remarkable, pretty quick comeback. Your thoughts on his future and what could happen in this next upcoming election? Well, I have,
1: uh, have heard for years that Netanyahu Bibi is finished. This is his last, uh, his last rodeo. And I always say in response, it is always premature to eulogize Mr. Netanyahu politically. That's so when you think he's gone, he's coming back. And now he's coming back. Uh, according to the polls last night, he's significantly in the lead to be the next prime minister of Israel. The, the uh, next election is to be held on November 1st. Um, and uh, even the, the, I think the, the admirable performance of uh, interim prime minister Yair Lapid during the recent conflict has not given him much of a bump uh, politically, maybe a single seat uh in comensis out of hundred and twenty seats. He um the fact of the matter is you, you either love Netanyahu or you don't love Netanyahu. I, I live in a in a largely working class neighborhood of, of South Tel Aviv and you can't say any word a bad word about Benjamin Netanyahu. Yeah, no, he's very That's popular no there, right? No way. And uh and uh, and frankly he's a person of of extraordinary talents and, and one of the few Readily recognizable leaders in the world. How many people in, in your leadership, would, you know, know who the you know the prime minister of Belgium is or the prime minister, even the president of France? I mean, everyone knows the name of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, one of the maybe three or four leaders in the world who was de- definitely recognized as international uh, profile and deservedly so. And so um, my guess is, my gut feeling is, we're headed to some type of unity government in November. Um, both Netanyahu and Lapid, in their statements after the conflict with Gaza, um, kind of praised one another, which was uh, unusual for Israeli politics, It and is I mean, a it rare moment. for American politics, and my sense is that they are laying the groundwork for some type of unity government that would uh, serve to keep some of the more radical elements out, both on the right and the left. We have radical left and we have radical right in this country. Um, and I think that both these gentlemen would like to keep them out of the coalition.
0: It was an amazing moment to acknowledge each other. And I think also, Israelis have had, what well, this will be the fourth election in five years. Am I doing the math right? Or is it five and four yeah. years?
1: <laughs> I think it's five
0: and four. Five and no four, sense. yeah. Uh, they probably <laughs> are tired of elections tired. now, right? They're like, hey, let's get this thing right, right this time.
1: It's, you know, it, we have very intelligent uh, cab drivers. If you want to understand politics in this country, you have got to talk to the cab drivers. <laughs> Isn't and, uh, that brilliant? I, had, I had one today. It's just amazing. They're they, they're listening to the news all day. Of course. And it's, it's respect, and it's a very it's a highly respected position in this country. And um, it's uh, and my cab drivers have said to me again and again. Listen, we love Bibi. We don't love Bibi. Doesn't matter. What we want is stability and we're, we're there are a lot of problems in this country there's a, a the cost of living is off the charge I'm, I'm talking you can Tel aviv the most expensive city on the earth okay we are not proud of that of, of that uh of that uh of that role in the world and um we've got to get down you know we have a a, we're a booming economy have come very back We've come very swiftly back in covid uh a very positive uh growth rate economically our um per capita gdp has passed japan um, past Italy, we're closing it on Germany. And yet people, people can't afford to live here. Um, the housing costs are literally through the roof and, uh, our, our shopping basket is one is either the the most expensive in the world or, or we're buying with Japan. And, uh, that's so unfortunate. And, and people, I have, you know, I have children who have, uh, are all in the professions, but they, they, if they say in Hebrew, you can't close the month. And, um, and it, it's very difficult. So that is the major issue that Israelis face. Um, you'd think that the major thing facing us would be the Palestinian issue. Uh, I look at the political surveys and the Palestinian issue, believe it or not, is the issue which comes in dead last. Uh, but re- yeah, dead last. What Israelis care about are housing prices, food prices, you know, car, education, infrastructure. We have terrible uh, traffic jams here. We have four times the traffic density of the United States, which costs us billion billions of dollars every year in loss, you know, product productivity.
2: Um
1: and uh it's market time, get work period. And uh, no, these are the problems we face. And um, you know, uh, large segments of the population, whether it be the Bedouin in the South or um, or even the ultra orthodox population who you know don't aren't part of the tax base. Uh, They can build illegally. These are the problems we face. Uh, The Palestinians come in dead last.
0: It's just amazing to think of that. I think the perception in America would be just the opposite, but that tells us something. Just Uh, the opposite. Yeah, nation of prosperity, nation of enormous innovation, but the cost of living is getting in the way of some of that success. That's something, a dynamic we're going to have to watch. We got about a minute left. I want to ask you about something, because one of my favorite short story books of all time, is your great work called The Night Archer. But you've got another book coming out. Tell us what's coming down the pike in a few weeks. I understand The Swan's War, right?
1: The Swan's War. I'm, I'm delighted to talk about it. I hope to talk about it as it comes out closer to the pub date, which is in October. This is a, it's a whodunit. And i got to say, a book, it's it. a really hard to write. Really hard to write. One of the most difficult things to write I've ever had to do. It's set on an, an imaginary island off the coast of Massachusetts in the year 1944. Uh, it's a story about a, a policewoman from South Boston. Her name is Mary Beth Swan, hence the title, uh, Swan's War. And uh, she marries the police captain of this island, Archibald Swan, and he goes off to war. He goes off from the Marines to fight in the South Pacific and uh, leaves her in charge of the island, which would be difficult enough because, you know, she's a, an Irish girl from Boston and, you know, these, these maritime salts are tough on her. They don't like her. She's, a, she's an outsider. But what's worse is there are 90 Italian prisoners of war who have been placed on a in a prisoner of war camp on the island. They work, as they did in World War II, it's true. They let them out, they needed them to be fishermen and farmers, and one by one, they are being murdered. And so Mary Beth Swan, alone on this island, has to find out who is murdering the Italians.
0: And, um, wow. (laughs) I love it. Listen, everybody loves a good mystery thriller. Uh, it's a good mystery. It sounds amazing. I don't know where you find the time with all the things you do to also write such epically good literature. I mean, these are great books. Night Archer, one of the greatest collections of short stories I've ever seen done. It really stretches not only the imagination right. but your thought. And uh, now a mystery thriller for this son of an Irish cop. I'll be buying that. I guarantee you that. You'll, I love
2: oh, it. you'll love this. I'm ah, Daughter and the
1: granddaughter <laughs> granddaughter of Irish cops.
0: <laughs> it's perfect. It's perfect. We're going to love it here in America. Mr. Ambassador, it is always an honor to having to show you make sense of a very turbulent world, and we're grateful for your time today.
1: So a pleasure. Take care, John.
0: Thank you, sir, as well. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to go over to Michigan, where we're going to talk to the great new minted Republican House candidate, John James, right after this. who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text just news to 98 98 98 right now. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. I've been covering politics for about 35 years, and this, unlike any year, maybe since 1994, people are talking about the quality of candidates that Republicans are putting into position to win in the fall. A really strong suite of candidates great backgrounds, great energy, great vision for the country. And you don't have to look any further than the great state of Michigan to see that. One of the names that comes up all the time when you talk about Michigan, John James. He ran for Senate a couple years ago, narrowly lost. He's on the ballot this time for the 10th Congressional District in the U.S. House in Michigan. And he's joining us now. John, great to have you on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to chatting with folks today. We're having a lot of fun. This is a great moment in election history, a lot of excitement. You bring all this military background as an Army Ranger. You served in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Get into politics. It seems like this is the year Republicans are going to have a pretty strong wave. What are you seeing on the ground as you talk to constituents? What I'm seeing on the ground is people
2: don't give a rip about what party you're from. They're looking at people who can bring the best solutions. And uh, I think that puts us at a distinct advantage to communicate with folks because, uh, um, because I have experience in the real world, uh, I think relevant experience is, is what matters, and we're seeing how critical that is uh, when we put uh, we leave politicians in charge of, of making life decisions for us. Um, we see um, uh, when, when we have uh, failures that are uh, at this administration that are that are crippling our economy, uh, that that's threatening our standing uh, uh, globally. Uh, these are things that we need to send people who understand what it's like in business, understand what it's like to create jobs because they've done it in the real world and and what it's like and what it takes to uh, to protect American jobs, what it takes to uh, to grow companies, because they've done it before. Uh, Having that experience uh, is is critical to my district, Michigan's newly drawn 10th congressional district. I believe it's critical to our state, state of Michigan, and the country. I'm looking forward to bringing my experience, my energy uh, to bear, because uh, we're we're in desperate need of of clear-eyed moral leadership to take our country to the next level.
0: I think that's what people want. They want candidates that say what they mean and mean what they say. And I think the last few years, particularly in Michigan, a lot of frustration with the ruling class there. What are the issues on the ground that when you're out with constituents that they have the greatest frustration with, whether it's with Whitmer, the Senate, the Congress? What are the things that are moving the electorate right now? I'll tell you what, um, people in Michigan, particularly
2: with the way that our governor botched uh, the uh, handling of COVID, um, freedom is on the ballot. Uh, Never before did I ever think that we would have to campaign on freedom, but we are. Um, Conservatives are campaigning on on having government uh, that that leaves you alone. Uh, I mean, the the very basics, uh, limited government, uh, uh, lowering taxes. Uh, These are the types of things that people really care about. Uh, And Democrats are the exact opposite. This top-down, centralized approach uh, is more akin to what we would see coming out of Beijing and Moscow than what we should see out of D.C., Uh, The the Democrat left, whether it's in Lansing uh, right now in the state of Michigan or in D.C., uh, are are hellbent on on taking freedom away uh, uh, from from the people. And I, for one, uh, from from lessons of of human nature and world history, know that um, a government that doesn't trust its people shouldn't be trusted. We need to make sure that uh, we do everything we can to put power back into the hands of the people. Uh, We represent the people. And, and we make sure that we uh, allow them to live their lives most uh, prosperously and, and most free. Uh, I think the way we do that is uh, is to make sure that we we strengthen our economy. Uh, we do things to help make our families safer. We we help our schools get better and stronger. We, we absolutely have to take care of our environment. In Michigan being a great lake state, we have to make sure we have clean water. And we have to end corruption uh, in our district, in our state, and in D.C. Um, I believe that the former president said it best when he said drain the swamp. There's still... Uh, Swamp creatures down in D.C., and I'm looking forward to uh, to making sure that we hold these unelected bureaucrats accountable uh, to the people.
0: Yeah, the swamp is still alive and well. You're 100% right, living right in the middle of it. There was this moment yesterday, speaking of the former president, President Donald Trump, his home and office raided in Florida. A lot of questions about what the FBI was up to. Why now is this just the Biden administration going after its potential future opponent in 2024? You serve in the military. You believe in the goodness of this country. Your reaction to what happened yesterday?
2: I've said for quite some time that executive overreach is uh, is out of control in D.C. Um, so, so here's a question for you. This is one thing that, that I, I really struggle with. There, there are 435 people in the House of Representatives. There are 100 people in the Senate, and we have— um, of uh, a president and so you have 536 count vice president okay 537 uh in washington who are elected who are sent there by the people yet the area around dc has over a million people and it's growing so you have over a million unelected people who are there and i ask what are they doing they're making laws they're they're coming up with ways to justify their own existences and this this massive this this massive uh, um, uh, uh, unelected bureaucracy is running roughshod over the American people. They are circumventing Congress, and they are making life more difficult uh, for American people. Whether you're a farmer, whether you're a, a, a steel worker, um, we absolutely must have safety and security. But I believe in limited government, and under no circumstances should this government be weaponized to to execute on on political ends the american people have to be able to trust their agencies to work in their best interest and right now there's doubt amongst the people of, of both parties that the government is capable of doing anything of the sort so uh, i'm looking forward to when i get to congress uh, making sure that we bring uh, the bureaucracy to heal and to account to the american people because what the american people on both sides right now are looking at is uh is an executive uh, overreach that has gone out of control and must absolutely be held accountable to the people.
0: Yeah, and the Democrats are doubling down on that executive overreach, on that growth of government. Brand new bill, $740 billion of new taxes, new spending, and 87,000 new IRS agents. Your thoughts about what the Senate did this past week in, in passing that bill? We don't need more IRS agents. We need less regulation.
2: We need less taxes. Uh, we need less government, not more. Uh, look, the, the Biden administration has been in charge for a little bit over a year and a half, and look how much damage they've done—not just domestically to our small businesses, not not just not just uh, globally to to our allies that, that believe that they that we can no longer be trusted, and, and our and our enemies who are emboldened. Uh, but but look at the damage they've done in 18 months. Uh, the 87,000, 87,000. More IRS agents. Look, there are only a few hundred billionaires, a few hundred billionaires, in in the country. Who do we think these eighty-seven thousand new agents are going to be auditing? Not going to be those billionaires. <laughs> no, they don't it's need any more to for that. Auditing. They are coming after us, and, and and we are we are we are wantonly wantonly um, remaining ignorant. If we think that Joe Biden wants eighty-seven thousand more. IRS agents to just go after businesses. They're already doing that. And and so they're coming after us. They want your money. That's what they're doing. You can fill, you could sell out Ford Field, a capacity of 65,000. You could sell out at the same time uh, Little Caesars Arena in Detroit uh, uh, to capacity and still have a couple thousand seats left over. For all the IRS agents that they are putting in Washington, we don't need more unelected bureaucrats in Washington. We need less uh, unelected bureaucrats in Washington. We need to streamline what goes on. We need to have direct accountability with our government and we lose it when this administration and Democrats are content with taking our rights and outsourcing them uh, to, to people who are not accountable to us.
0: That's wrong. Yeah, such an amazing dynamic to see what's going on. And it seems like the Democrats aren't reading or listening to the American people. They don't
2: care because they don't care because they don't care. Yeah. That's exactly the point. They they are going to dictate to us what they want. You know, um, uh, the, the 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 gas price is too high. You can't afford four and five and six dollar gas that's okay right democrats you can just buy a sixty thousand dollar ev oh you can't afford a sixty thousand dollar ev we'll give you a and, uh, seven hundred and seven thousand five hundred dollar uh tax credit for the ev oh but wait because we don't understand how business works in the automotive industry uh seventy seven zero percent of the automotives that are uh, automobiles that qualify um, wouldn't wouldn't work the, the 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 tax credits wouldn't qualify for 70 of the domestic automakers because we we're about to trade our dependence on on saudi oil for dependence on chinese batteries these people have no idea what's going on because they don't care they have decided that they've already wanted to go to our batteries they've decided that they've already gone for this green new deal agenda and if you're not on board your enemy you're wrong you're bad you're deplorable well we reject that out of hand we must have an all of the above energy approach that harnesses the great energy independence that we already have in this nation while also planning forward for the future where we have a cleaner uh uh, and more economical uh solutions they don't care about what you think and if you don't get on board they consider you the enemy they consider you bad and they need to get it right they need to get it right is that we the people who control this thing and not the governing liberal elite
0: you fought overseas you did hundreds of hours of combat missions oversaw an apache squadron you fought for freedom and now we live in an era since that service where dissent is being crushed where if you don't go along with the elitist storyline you're censored you're ostracized You, you may be pursued for uh criminal charges or civil charges all that sacrifice you and your colleagues made in the war did is this the america they were hoping they would end up with when they were done
2: well i can't speak for uh, for all of them i can just speak for myself and i can just tell you like like we kind of led off this segment um i i, I thought that i would be fighting for for uh um shortening and broadening the pathway to prosperity for folks on our forgotten farms and neglected neighborhoods all over the country. I thought that I would be fighting uh, so that our children uh, would not be, uh, their outcomes would not be determined by their zip code, making sure we have better school. I, I thought that I would be fighting for uh, making sure that we end gun violence, that we secure our borders, and that we, we, uh, we make our, 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 uh, our neighborhoods safer. But after coming back from Iraq, I, I find myself literally fighting for freedom again. But you know, that's okay, because I swore an oath to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and what, John? Domestic. And the greatest enemy that we face is the specter of communism that has infiltrated our, our, our neighborhoods, our campuses, our cities, our minds, and that is the real threat. The, 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 the threat of communism Uh, uh, emanating from from Beijing and from Moscow is not strictly territorial it's ideological and this thought that the government is meant to fix every single one of our problems the expectation that you've even seen on the right that we can spend our way out of inflation that we can spend our way out of these problems that the federal government has something that we can that, that they can fix that the American people can't that is what we're fighting against that wrong ideology that we are not created in the lord's image and that we are more than conquerors and we have him behind us we have the ability to do all these things through christ but more importantly more importantly i believe that when we have the right leadership who believes in us that will help us achieve greatness that's what we need communism is is a cancer and it's metastasizing within this country and we all must speak the truth that the government in itself is not the solution It is a method that the people use in order to achieve a a greater society for the future. And so that is what we're doing. We're fighting for freedom because freedom works. Self-determination
0: works. And I believe in the people, not the government. Yeah, and that's what our founding fathers did. In fact, our founding fathers fared the very moment, I think, that we're in now where the big central government would be dictating every aspect of our life and we're scrapping to get that freedom back. I want to turn to a place where you... You went to West Point. You became a ranger qualified aviation officer. You probably didn't experience the things that some of the recruits today are seeing inside West Point. Your thought on this woke agenda that seems to be inserted into the military right now, good or bad for the country? Well, I'll tell you,
2: anything that distracts from um, of fighting and winning our nation's wars, uh, I, I think it, it is bad for the nation and bad for unit cohesion, Um, When I was at West Point uh, and and when many of my mentors were at West Point, frankly, we were taught the exact opposite. We were taught that the only color that mattered was green. Uh, It it was the color of our uniforms. The only color that mattered uh, uh, was was the, the way that we were the same. Um, Now, we know that we all have differences. There's differences between men and women. There's differences between gay and straight. There's differences between black and white. But when you're fighting uh, in a volunteer military, when when you're fighting for a nation as strong and diverse as the United States, then you need to focus on the things that unite us, the things that that we all believe in, uh, the equality, freedom, justice for all, uh, and and not necessarily the things that separate us. I I think it it threatens uh, unit cohesion. I think it threatens uh, frankly recruitment uh that uh, that's a that's a uh a, right now uh, Recruitment recruitment's down right uh, i think it it threatens when you when you come in and you're walking into a military uh where um there is otherism there is uh there's this this separation by things that are superficial i think the military has been great for so many uh, uh for so many decades a couple of centuries now a few centuries now because uh, the the military has been great at focusing on what matters, Um, bringing uh, young men and women together to accomplish tough and dangerous missions. And and that's what I did in combat. I I graduated from West Point in 2004. I became a Ranger qualified Apache pilot. And I had the honor of flying 750 hours combat in Operation Iraqi Freedom with some of the best and most highly qualified uh, people uh, in the world. Uh, We were um, flying combat missions to keep uh, civilians safe on the ground or to make sure that American soldiers got back home safely. Um, it was an honor to serve, and uh, not one time did when someone called me asking for support on the ground did they ask if I were black. Not, not one time did they ask if, if I were straight. Not one time did they ask if I were Christian because it didn't matter. It, what mattered is was I trained, was I focused, was I good at my job. Was I going to do every single thing I could to protect my brother and my sister to my left and my right? Could they trust me with their family? And, and that's what mattered. Um, I think that anything that distracts from the focus of the purpose and the mission of the United States military, uh, I, I think it hurts. Uh, and, and of course uh, we need to pay respect and homage uh, for, for our, for our heritage and our ethnicities. But the thing that matters the most is not black or white
0: or yellow, but red, white, and blue. And when we get away from that, and that's when we start getting into trouble. Yeah. And it's exactly what our enemies want us to focus on, right? They want to f- us focus on division so we can't be united to win the great struggles we have ahead of us. As you look out now, you, there's a very clear group running for all the open races in Michigan. It's one of the stronger slates. I think that Michigan has produced on the Republican side. a while how excited are you for the entire ticket that Republicans have put together from Tudor Dixon on down?
2: Well, uh, you know, I, I'm very excited uh, for Republicans' prospects uh, here um, for the state of Michigan because we, we've just, we've just um, gone through a, a very tough few years uh, under the, the misguided leftist uh, agenda from, from COVID to elections to, to, uh, to, to population decline uh, to economic uh, struggles. Uh, we need to get uh, conservative leadership to the front, and I, I'm so excited uh, to be a part of, uh, of, of, a, of a team and a class that uh, is going to uh, take Michigan to the next level. I'm really focused on uh, on bringing my skill sets to bear uh, to really uh, help in, in my newly drawn 10th congressional district, uh, which comprises the southern portion of Macomb County and uh, Rochester, Rochester Hills. Uh, this is an area that's super important, uh, not just uh, not just for the state, but for the nation. Uh, when you consider that this will be the number one manufacturing district in the country, and uh, have Selfridge Air National Guard Base and, uh, and uh, the Arsenal of Democracy uh, in the same district for the very first time. Um, having a combat veteran, uh, having a supply chain business leader uh, representing uh, this district in Washington, I believe can be a game changer um, for the good folks in this district and, uh, and, and for the role that we must play in uh, making our nation economically uh, strong and, and militarily strong into the future.
0: Yeah. When I was a young political reporter, we would go to Macomb County because that was like the bellwether of America. As Macomb would vote, you kind of knew the rest of the country was thinking the same way. It was one of those great bellwethers. There's clearly a thought across this country that we are on the wrong course, whether it's economically or security. As you look out at the way we exited Afghanistan and the way that we're trying to negotiate with Iran while Iran continues to carry out terror attacks all over the globe every day, what do you think everyday Americans think about our standing in the world right now? Uh,
2: I think that most everyday Americans are are thinking about uh, putting food on the table. I think everyday Americans are thinking about um, how how, uh, poorly this administration has run this nation such that uh their uh, folks are are trying to figure out whether they fill their gas tank or they fill their grocery cart i think what most americans are talking about is uh going back to school in the next couple of weeks isn't that crazy isn't that crazy kids are going back to school i i I think that most americans are talking about going back to school and and wondering if they're going to have enough for school supplies or if their kids are going to be getting crt or uh, reading writing and and, uh and uh and arithmetic uh I, i think that um that's what most folks are, are, are talking about. But, again, to your point, we are a nation at war, whether folks want to believe that or not. Uh, we, are a nation, uh, we are a nation where our, our um, because of this administration's botched retreat from Afghanistan, um, our, our, our enemies are emboldened and our allies are confused. Uh, we are a nation that, uh, I just went to a going away party for a young man who's going to be uh, deployed to Iraq. For the next year, Iraq, right? So we still have presences all over. Uh, I have friends uh, who are officers uh, who are stationed over in Poland, right? Right now, on the uh, on the on the other border, uh, in, in case uh, Russia starts getting uh, getting a little bit squirrely over there. So uh, we have men and women out there in harm's way. And if any of you are listening to this podcast, I want to say thank you for your service, brothers and sisters. God bless you. And if you are veterans and have served, thank you for your service. God bless you. And uh, if you're a Vietnam veteran and you're and you're listening, welcome home.
0: Yeah, those are important words. And we need to extend them to you too, sir, because you served this country bravely. And now you're bringing all that experience into politics, which I think most Americans love to see that. Last question for you. You ran a couple of times for Senate. You nearly pulled off, I think would have been one of the greatest upsets in politics, almost knocking off Gary Peters. You've learned a lot on the campaign trail. What's been the biggest lesson for you as you become a more experienced campaigner? What are some of the biggest lessons you learned?
2: I would say the biggest lesson is is, is don't run uh, during a global pandemic. Um,
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's probably a good rule. Yeah. Uh, I mean,
2: who who could have seen that coming? Exactly. Um, well, I, I I would say that um, it really wouldn't be a lesson learned as much as uh, I'm really really looking forward to getting out there and uh, in, and in having to run in a pandemic. Uh, I'm I'm looking forward to getting out there, knocking on the doors, having uh, uh, having uh, tea parties with the uh, with the uh, with the with the ladies, the the older ladies in uh, in the neighborhoods, having barbecues uh, and, and shaking people's hands, uh, listening to their concerns, and really engaging on a personal level. Um, the uh, Democrats shut down our state. They shut down our state. And, and and after growing up in the church, I I we'd read Revelation and we would study the Word, and never in my lifetime did I ever think that it would be illegal to go to church. But Gretchen Whitmer made it illegal to go to church in the state of Michigan. Uh, and we, we shouldn't forget that. Um, so I, I, I'm looking forward to really engaging with people because I, I, I know that if people could have heard me, if they could have engaged with me, if they could have looked me in the eye and knew that not only did I have the experience to lead effectively and represent them well in the Senate, but I also cared about them personally, that I am tremendously blessed. And I know that I have an obligation, not an option, to be a blessing to others. And I'm just so excited that I have that opportunity to engage with people on the personal level, meet them where they are right now, bridge those gaps, and bring that unity, bring that leadership uh, that people are so desperate for right now. So I'm, I'm a servant. Uh, I'm here to serve. And uh, if folks like to learn a little bit more about the campaign or maybe even help please uh, go to johnjamesmi.com. Thanks a lot.
0: That's a really easy one to remember, John James MI. When I've talked to people who have come in contact with me, John, just got to share this. They say that your enthusiasm for America is infectious. And in an era where a lot of people talk America down, I know a lot of people are excited to see a candidate who loves this country and can spread that love to the other people, motivate other people to pitch it and get this country going. So congratulations on that. And We look forward to the fall election. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. God bless you. You as well, sir. Thanks for the time today. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to wrap things up.
2: Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
0: Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good
2: news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top
0: podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad free news podcasts to catch up on the latest
2: episodes without the ads.
0: All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. So glad you can join us today. A big thanks to our guest, Ambassador Ron Dermer, and of course, John James from Michigan. Two people who had a lot to say, have a lot of expertise on the ground in Israel, in America, about what real voters, real people are thinking. Great interviews. Grateful for their time today. They both were gracious with their time. Now, before we go, I know a lot of you are reading the headlines. You're worried about the stock market. You're worried about the worldwide farming crisis. You hear of these warnings for the UN and others that we're going to have a food crisis in the world. Anything that happens in the world can always trickle down into this great United States of America. And while we got great farmers, great system, you've seen the problems of the supply chain. You've seen the problems that we've had with baby formula and other failures since Joe Biden took over. One of the best things experts say you can do is create a four-week supply of food for you. Keep it on hand. Have that peace of mind so you never have to worry about it. Well, guess what? My good friends at My Patriot Supply, one of the most trusted supply houses in the world, they're going to allow you a $50 savings. They're going to give you a $50 savings on a four-week emergency food kit. When you go to this URL, check this out, I got my own URL. PrepareWithSolomon.com That's PrepareWithSolomon.com They have a special offer there for you You're going to save 50 bucks on a four-week emergency food kit for you and your family This kit contains enough meals for four salad weeks per person with more than 2,000 calories a day for sustainable energy That is the perfect scenario that experts say you need to prepare for the future. Find this special offer at this incredible URL that my good friends at Patriot Supply were willing to set up. It's called preparewithsolomon.com. I love it. Do it today before it's too late. One more time, preparewithsolomon.com. Thanks to my good friends at my Patriot Supply for all they're doing to make all of us in the United States a little bit better prepared. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Check us out tonight. We've got a great show on the television show, Just the News, Not Noise. Lou Dobbs is joining us. Alan Dershowitz is joining us. Liz Harrington, the spokeswoman for the president. And, of course, Blake Masters, the Arizona Republican Senate nominee, the winner of last week's big election in Arizona, Trump endorsed. Great lineup, back-to-back-to-back tonight, 6 p.m. on Real America's Voice. Check us out. All right, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Have a great night. God bless you. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. And in between, while you're waiting, if you have a hankering for news, you know what to do. Go to justthenews.com 24-7. we got you covered. (music) Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out. And you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you gotta do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation, the way to do it with gold. All you gotta do to get started on that journey with my good friends, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now.